Hello, it's been a while. I just find it. I don't know. It just tickled the right part of my brains. Yeah. What's up, nerds? Hey, it's Luke and Dane, and it's the Boys Who Cook podcast. Hey guys, we're back with the Boys Who Cook podcast. Uh, today we have our friend Bennett, and um, for those of you that have listened to a few of our other episodes, uh, Bennett is the friend that we mentioned that said we should start a podcast. Um, so this brainchild is really the product of Bennett's comment, and so we honestly owe Bennett our podcast. So um, Bennett's going to talk to us a little bit about what he's interested in, and so Bennett, it's great to have you on today. Hey, uh, thank you, Luke. I really appreciate being asked to come on. Great. Um, so tell us a little bit about what you're interested in uh, doing with your life. Well, um, I'm just about to start my fourth year of medical school, and I'm planning on going into family medicine. Uh, kind of since I came into school, I was wanting to be a rural family doc, um, and everything I've seen so far has just pushed me further towards that. So I'm really interested in embedding in a small community, really becoming a part of people's families, and uh, using medicine, I guess, as a means to uh, see others and be seen in return. That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. So what 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 has drawn you into the more like rural aspect like you're talking about? Well, part of it is like this deep-seated need to be needed that I think a lot of us uh, in medicine have. But there's also this um, element of like not just wanting to do the work that needs to be done, but wanting to do a particular kind of work that's, you know, enriching over time. So one thing I think is really powerful about family medicine in particular is um, continuity of care and being able to stick with somebody for years or even decades and ideally, you know, stick with their family, see their life through generations. And I think that smaller communities, um, I guess, facilitate that a little bit better. Uh, people in you know, rural areas, they, they have less means and less mobility, they have fewer options. And so in that sense, like I'm exploiting a monopoly or I'm be trying to become one, but I'm also trying to um, grow with these people. And I think yeah. with less mobility, you know, like you might see in like on the coasts or in a, a big urban center, um, you can actually see people for longer than three or four years. Um, and yeah. I, I really, I really appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, as someone who grew up in a really small town, um, you know, as a kid, we had uh, a local physician and I, you know, something happened and, and she ended up going, you know, when I was like seven or eight. But I mean, I remember I went to her, I had pneumonia as a child and was hospitalized, but I saw her first and they gave me a couple of breathing treatments. But, you know, we had that relationship and she, you know, when she told my parents, hey, I really think he needs to go to the hospital. That was really powerful. Like, for her to say that because, you know, we had that prior relationship. And so, yeah, it, it was nice because we didn't have to drive really far to go to the doctor, um, which is what you see a lot in the, in the rural communities is you have to, you know, go an hour or 30 minutes. And so it was really nice to have that option and that availability. Um, so no, I think that's, I think that's wonderful. And it's definitely something that's needed. Um, it's yeah. Needed. I think one of the, you know, the big things there is that lower threshold for seeking care, just, it being a 20 minute drive instead of an hour and a half is a big deal. But also okay. when you hear something coming from somebody, it means something completely different. If you know that person and have a relationship with them. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Particularly because there's been such a huge trust, trust issue between the general professionals. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of that is because, you know, I, I would wager that there's a large swath of America that feels kind of abandoned by, the medical community because you know like you said 
there is sort of a geographical problem as well as a relationship problem um, in small cities and towns. And I think that being able to go out there and kind of be on the front line, so to speak, is awesome. I, th I think in a lot of ways, there's like a cultural and linguistic barrier that exacerbates that, that yeah. uh, we're preposterously overeducated. I'm about to start 20th grade and some of my yeah. patients will have barely finished ninth. I mean, we have to have this like broader mindset of what the world is like at large. That's that's very different than the kinds of relationships we form in medical school. And I think a lot of people graduate and they just want to live the life that they have wanted to live, you know, with, you know, a nice house and Postmates and all that. But um, yeah, I think there's more to it than that. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and you're right. I mean, you know, the amount of education we receive just coming out of medical school is ridiculous, let alone even after medical school, we're doing, you know, potentially, you know, three to seven more years of training post that. I mean, you're right. I mean, the level of education compared to a lot of the general patients that we'll be seeing is there's a major gap. And you're right. We need more physicians willing to sort of bridge that gap and kind of be willing to step outside of this sort of intellectual kind of bubble that we've kind of found ourselves in and actually, and actually be able to communicate to patients in that way. Yeah, I think there's a, a lot of soft skills that go into that. And it's important to think about it as an intellectual challenge, not just of like, oh, I have the, the strength of character to reach out to somebody. It's mm -hmm. like you are being active with this, you know, this brain that has been trained through this incredible mm -hmm. investment of school to figure out what it is the patient needs to hear and how they need to hear it in order to understand it right. That's hard. Yeah. 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 That's great, man. That's, that's really awesome. So like, have you, I mean, I know you're still, you know, at least uh, three to four years away from actually starting your practice, but like, have you thought about ways that you're going to tackle that issue when you go out into these communities? Yeah. So number one uh, above literally everything else is I have to learn Spanish. I was an idiot in seventh grade and went into German and I spent the next like decade of my life learning how to speak German fluently and it's great, but it's kind of useless right now. Um, <laughs> beautiful language, just very few uh, speakers here in the US. Uh, however, my Spanish is budding. It is in its inchoate stages of development. And I really need to work on that in order to be able to reach people. I mean, you can use a Marty or a translator or all kinds of means to get around that, but it's it's very, very different than being able to actually have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. There's no replacement for that. Mm -hmm. um, a couple of other things that I, I wanna do is, I would like to own my own practice if possible. I think that gives me more latitude on like how large I want it to be and how I want it to be structured. But also I'm really interested in direct primary care, which is sort of a means of, uh, circumventing a traditional insurance model where you almost like insure a patient population at the physician panel level as opposed to a broader population level. Gotcha. Awesome. Yeah. And that's actually something that I think, I think direct, direct primary care is a super interesting concept. Um, and I saw a little bit of it when I was on family medicine, but Bennett, could you kind of talk a little bit more about DPC to kind of our listeners? Cause I think even a lot of our classmates don't know a whole lot about it. Absolutely. Um, direct primary care is a model in which the patient pays a subscription service to their physician that is kind of like their uh, insurance premium in that it entitles them to care at that uh, physician's 
point of care um, basically as many times as they need to visit. Usually there's a fee structure on top of that if you need to get labs or perform procedures um, where you, you'd have to pay a little extra. But uh, barring that, it can be a really affordable way for especially like young people or like younger families to um, get regular preventative care for them and their children without having to pay a, a really large insurance premium. Uh, usually this kind of model relies on catastrophic insurance or some other supplemental insurance because obviously not everything can be taken care of at the level of a family doc's office. Um, so this kind of thing wouldn't cover referrals or, or uh, hospitalizations or surgeries. But honestly, the heavy lifting in our healthcare system is done by that preventative care. And so if we can get more people in the door for that, it's, uh, it's likely to lower costs overall. Uh, so people have made comparisons to like a concierge medicine model. Um, and there are sort of different ways that people have been able to structure it to tailor to different income groups. Uh, I think one criticism commonly levied against DPC is that it it uh, is only really accessible to the rich. And I, I don't think that that's necessarily the case. I think especially in rural environments with lower costs of operating that you can end up with uh pretty affordable preventative care. Awesome. Yeah. And I know that's something we've kind of talked about too. Um, when you and I have talked about like how uh, circumventing uh, insurance companies as a whole would kind of look like, um, kind of like talking about the DPC model and how that might even apply to hospitals. And that like, you might have like a direct primary care physician that, um, or a physician group that sort of like, kind of like in the old days, how they have like practicing rights at a hospital and that like, if you're a part of that physician group, if you pay the subscription, to that physician group, you also could be seen at this hospital. And yeah, I mean, I think DPC is super cool. Um, I think it has the potential to kind of really not only do the heavy lifting in terms of preventive care, but maybe even serve as a model for other things, um, like referrals or even more uh, interventional type care. Yeah, I think super cool is exactly the right word to use there. Uh, I, yeah. It's it's very neat, but I simply don't know enough about how to bill and you know all, how insurance even works. I mean, I'm yeah, I'm just a 26 year old kid. I I have a lot left to learn about how to operate a practice. You know. Yeah. Um, so sure. I see broader market trends. You know, pulling physicians out of self ownership essentially, and and maybe that's honestly a a, a more effective way of serving the market, but. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess I'll learn more in residency. Yeah, that's true. I mean, definitely the, the days of the days of private practice for a lot of physicians is definitely gone by the wayside for sure. So, yeah, we'll see if kind of direct primary care can kind of survive that and kind of find its own niche. So, yeah, we'll see. Yeah. So, um, Bennett, what would you say has been like one of your favorite memories during third year? Hmm. Or like a funny memory or really just any memory that you just pops in your mind that was like super cool. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, I was on our PED service very early on in the year and um, I rounded on this girl maybe in her, she was like nine or 10 or something like that. She was, she was younger. She's like eight. Um, and, you know, we built a little bit of rapport uh not a whole lot, maybe just a couple of days. I went on another service and then I came back onto child psych and happened to see the same patient. Uh, she was still there for the same thing. 
And I was like, oh, hey, you again. It's good to see you, yada, yada. And she's like, have we talked before? Uh, and I was like, yeah, I mean, I was just here like the other week. And she's like, oh, yeah, I remember you. You were doing this and this. And she started describing a different service that I was not on. And I was like, uh, I don't think that was me. And she's like, yes, yes, it was. Um, <laughs> and so I came back to her, you know, day after day, still rounding on her, trying to figure out, okay, who does she think that I am? Um, and then I realized she was describing one of my classmates who actually does kind of look like me. His name's David. He's also tall and skinny and wears <laughs> uh, similar clothes. <laughs> I, I spent like a whole week, the whole like last week I was on that service trying to track down David so that I could drag him up to that floor and be like, okay, this is David. This is Bennett. We're not the same. <laughs> did not end up happening, but she eventually did say she believed me that I wasn't that guy. <laughs> wow. Maybe not uh, number one favorite memory of all time, but it is definitely a funny little story. That is really funny. That's amazing. And also props to you for not telling a general surgery uh, story. I don't know. I, I feel like that was like where my plethora of like funny stories came from. So that's great. Yeah, I mean, I love gen surge. Don't get me wrong, but uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so Bennett, besides, would you say that your family medicine rotation was your like favorite rotation you've had this this year? Yeah, I actually think it was. Um, and I was I was a little worried about that because it was at the very end of the year and got disrupted by COVID, and so I had to do like part of it online, and that was a little frustrating and a little uh, anxiogenic. But mm -hmm. I really enjoyed it once I did finally get into clinic. I think a close second and third are uh, peds and internal med, which I think makes a lot of sense. I just like doing primary care regardless of the population. Yeah. Um, yeah. But be, being in an outpatient clinic setting, I just freaking loved it. You know, just the, the idea of meeting the patient where they're at and I'm here for their problem and not the other way around. And, you know, we could talk about anything. And that's so freeing to have the patient bring something else up and you don't have to say, oh, well, this is the neurology service. You can talk to your dermatologist about that. Yeah. Yeah. Like you talked about, you know, you're, you're the front line, that preventative care. Um, yeah. I think that's like a, one of the biggest draws into family medicine is that you, yes, if, if the problem is maybe too extensive, you know, if it's very specific, you, you might have to refer it. But for the most part, it's like, Hey, doc, I have this rash. It's like, cool. I can handle that. You know, like you said, it's not, Oh, well, that's germs like thing. Like that's, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. That's, I think that's well, one of the best things about it. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, regardless of being able to handle it, we can talk about it. You yeah. know, it's, it's like if I'm a neurologist seeing somebody and they bring up their derm problem, there's like nothing I'm ever going to do about that, you know. But yeah, yeah, because I'm I'm trying to cover a little bit of everything that even if I can't solve your problem, I can make you feel heard and I can connect you to what you need to solve your problem. Mm -hmm. Unlike, you know, so many other people in our profession kind of have their hands tied by their their scope. Yeah. 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 And I mean, if you've established that rapport, I mean, how, how often do you think patients would be like, you know, I really trust my doctor. I, I really appreciate what they have to say and they feel like I need to go see someone else. I think I would do that. You know what I mean? If you have that strong connection, I think you're more likely to do like the follow-up that's needed. Yeah. And man, you bring up a good point about having the trust. Um, your patients have to trust you or else, you know, I mean, everything that comes out of your mouth is worthless to them right yeah. and building trust is such a like tricky squishy uh, like problem you know we we don't get taught 
directly like this is how to appear trustworthy to somebody and there are so many things that go into that beyond just what you say i mean the way you look and how you carry yourself like i think i need to gain a little weight to look a little bit more trustworthy i'm looking a little spidery frankly and just you know little <laughs> things like that can make you seem more um uh, easy to buy into from the patient's perspective yeah yeah, that's awesome. So, you know, Bennett, one thing Dan and I really love to ask people on our podcast is uh, about the transition to third year. You know, for Dan and I, you know, that was a little bit tougher. You know, it was kind of a culture shock almost. So, you know, what was your experience going from second to third year? Well, um, my first rotation in third year was PEDS. And I think that was a really good way to start things off. Not only do we have really strong faculty in PEDS, but the culture in the department was very, like, welcoming uh, was very tolerant of our adjustment period. Um, and they're very hands-on about like, this This is the kinds of things you need to be doing. And and here's like an explicit list of, of like things we expect of you. And it's not like other rotations weren't also like really clear about expectations and evaluation, but like this was a good way to get me um, into the mindset of being in a hospital and like working among other professionals and real patients who actually need care uh, and kind of figuring out where I as a learner fit into that. So that, that was a really good, I think, service to start on. Um, some of my, I guess my very first like week was on um, uh, maternal fetal medicine, uh, which was a lot of fun. I mean, babies are a great place to start because it's almost, I, I don't want to call them like tabula rasa or anything, but they're babies like they do like six things you know <laughs> it's yeah. so like there's one exam that you do on every little baby and you get you get it nailed you, you get it down pat and so that was a good like almost practice run for how to how to round as a medical student yeah for sure um so Bennett what do you do outside of medicine to kind of unwind because you know I think Luke and I have talked about that medicine can kind of be this all-consuming beast that kind of eats up everything in your life. Um, is there like something you do to kind of escape that? Yeah, I mean, I think we all come up for air, but mm -hmm. I do think that like the nature of this field is, is very consuming, like you said, and it's okay to lean into that. Like, I, I don't mean to like skirt around your question or anything, but mm -hmm. I think it's important to recognize that for a lot of us, our professional brand will merge uh, with our personal brand, that our identities will be in large part constructed out of our our profession. Um, and so for that reason, medicine holds a very important part in my life. And even when I'm, you know, I've got downtime, I'm still listening to like, you know, medicine podcasts or, you know, occasionally yeah. reading papers, but I'm not, I don't mean to sell myself as some like uh, unstoppable Ubermensch who just studies all day. What I do to get away is a lot of yoga. Um, and I feel like meditation kind of like it, it's in there with that for me because people do yoga for all kinds of different reasons, you know, a workout or a stretch. But for me, it's about like clearing the outside world from my consciousness and becoming just like one with my body, you know, um, to accept the fact that I'm like a bag of meat and water and that I'm stretching this meat and water and it's making me remember that I inhabit a body um, and so, yeah, I like to do it really slowly, a lot of like restorative poses. Um, and I'll just like sit in one pose for, you know, five minutes, just really feel the stretch and really just 
think about what it's like to be here and be now. And yeah, I don't know. It's it's not so much a, a hobby, I guess. It's like a habit. But um, beyond that, I like uh, cooking. I like uh, playing with my cat. Uh, I like storm chasing. A <laughs> uh, little bit out there, a little bit seasonal, but uh, when I do have the chance, I'll I'll take it. Um, and more generally, I just like driving. Uh, I think yeah. an important part of um, feeling connected to my land is is just getting out and seeing my environs and, and getting out of the city a little bit and just looking at that prairie. Yeah. Um, what uh, What are some of your favorite dishes to cook? Man, I, I love beans and rice. And it's not just beans and rice, of course. There's always other stuff there. But, like, as a place to start, it's so, like, wholesome. And uh, I don't know. It feels like I'm really getting back to, like, human food. Like, these are these are crops that, like, we made as humans for humans to do cool human stuff with. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you put them together, you get all your essential amino acids and you put anything you want on it. And it's always like satisfying and tasty. Um, yeah. But beyond that, I, man, I've been really working on how to perfect like a, a ribeye and a cast iron. Um, okay. I like searing on the stove and then broiling. Um, but there's a lot of nuance that goes into that. I mean, for such simple techniques, like, you can do a lot of little things differently. And I mean, I'm, I don't want to oversell myself. Like I'm not a good cook, but like I'm learning. And I think it's a, a fun avenue to kind of challenge myself and grow. That's awesome. That's, that is that I feel like I've wanted to learn how to do, but I don't have a cast iron. So that's kind of out, but like I live in an apartment complex. And so I don't have a grill. I, they're like community grills, but Often they're not cleaned well. And then of course with COVID going on, I'm just, I'm not going to drop my steak on a grill outside any, like, like that other people have used. But um, yeah, I've always like wondered like, man, could I like sear these and then drop them in the oven and still get like that really good flavor, you know, still, yeah. still enjoy it. But yeah. Oh yeah, man. And not to turn this into a cast iron podcast, but don't, don't pay full price. Go to like an estate sale or something. Cause every, every old lady had a cast iron and every old lady dies and they leave behind their Perfect. cast irons in the teeth. <laughs> wow. That's Thanks, amazing. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's great advice. That's where I got mine. Nice. Awesome. You know, Luke and I, it wasn't on a cast iron, but we we made some burgers. We did some pan-seared burgers the other night, and they mm. actually turned out pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I wish we had marinated them a little bit longer, but they actually turned out really well. They kind of like, they were almost like sautéed in their own juices, and it actually like, yeah, Turn out to be like a really good burger. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, the patties were so good. You didn't even need a bun or any condiments or yeah. anything on top. You could just eat them straight up. They were that good. Yeah. yeah. And now after this long intro, I guess we can finally start the Boys Who Cook podcast. About I know. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is, I mean, so now we can say the show does have cooking involved. Yeah. Technically. Amongst the medicine. Yeah, I mean, yeah, who knows, uh, I mean, how much cooking will be involved, but I mean, you know, we've been cooking up podcasts at least, so. Been cooking up a lot of medicine at least, yeah. yeah. I don't know. <laughs> that was like a Dane joke just now. I, I'm, I'm rubbing off on him too much, I guess. Man, speaking, speaking of Dane jokes, that's honestly, that's what got me thinking about you guys putting together a podcast. Like, I, I want to say it was like first or second year, the two of you guys were hanging out in our like shared study space and just giggling 
And <laughs> that's what we do. <laughs> nobody giggles like you two guys. And <laughs> it is so infectious. And I don't even know what you're talking about. It's probably like Roman history or something like out there. But like, <laughs> I, man, uh, more people need to hear you guys giggling. That's what this <laughs> podcast should be about. <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll definitely try to like work in some more giggling moments uh, into the podcast for sure. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. think that's one of the biggest things about this podcast is like, we didn't want to be one of those serious medical podcasts. And I'm not saying those are bad, but like, that's just not our personalities at all. Like, we want to laugh about like stupid things that we've done or said or stupid things other people have done or just funny situations. I mean, I don't know. I'm a pretty happy person in general. So it's pretty easy to find myself laughing about stuff. So yeah, I feel like there's a lot of I don't know, I might be getting like, kind of pulling stuff out of my butt right now. But like, um, I feel like uh, either podcasts or movies or books like portray their characters or people act in these things like so serious and they lose a bit of their like humanity. I don't know. Like I wish like more things just felt more human. And so like, I'm glad we're kind of just like not taking this super seriously and just kind of being ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I I, I like it more that way, I guess. I certainly do too. Um, If you don't mind me plugging another podcast, uh, there's one on Spotify called the rational clinical exam. It's from the drama network. And I, I really like it. it. It goes into like clinical exam findings and their actual diagnostic utility. But um, the reason I mention it is it is very serious. It's, it's, you know, very tightly scripted and very clean and efficient, but like it's extremely serious and it doesn't feel human. I mean, I love listening to it, but it's like I listen to it when I don't feel fully human. <laughs> <laughs> when you, so when you, you actually need to study. Them, yeah. right? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Oh, and that's that's hilarious. So, Bennett, you know, one other thing we really love to talk about on the podcast is, um, you know, is there something that you feel really strongly about in medicine, you know, maybe political or, you know, you've talked a little bit about um, the rural medicine and how you want to pursue that. Is there something that you feel really strongly about that you'd like to advocate for when you become a physician or even before that? Yeah, yeah, there is. Um, I think. There's a lot of talk in like our preclinical curriculum, especially, but throughout medical school, um, we're taught about implicit bias and how it can influence the way we uh, see patients, the decisions we make about their care. Um, And I think that's really, really important. But I think that there is a bigger picture to that, that um, we don't talk about as much. Um, We talk about how like... um, being African-American is a risk factor for asthma. You know, that we'll put race into these clinical vignettes to as like a buzzword to get us thinking about sarcoid or sickle, sickle cell or something. Right. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of these um, associations between like race and a health outcome, the causal link is, is not like what we traditionally would think of as race as the pseudoscientific concept of inheritance. It's about the social determinants of health. So being black is a risk factor for asthma in, because they are more likely to live in environments with greater degree of atmospheric contaminants. So like we need to think about our patients outside of the office and how their race or sexuality or other aspects of their appearance, lifestyle, or identity contribute to their health. Mm. Um, And so we can't just look inward and think, okay, 
we got to treat people the same or we've got to be mindful about how race factors into our unconscious assessments of people. We have to look at a broader system and understand that race as a social construct doesn't just exist in our heads, it exists in all the heads of everyone in our society. And that is leading to these more structural problems that that cause these these health outcomes. So being actively anti-racist, being really thoughtful about what goes on outside of your office and how that's impacting your patient's health, you know, be it for for someone at a particularly uh, privileged group or a particularly underprivileged group, Um, being thoughtful about the social determinants of health and how they go beyond just what goes in and out of your body. I mean, the stress that people are under, the the trauma that they experience you know, throughout their lives affects all kinds of health outcomes. I mean, uh, people sleep less or we just have to be mindful, not just about, you know, trying to be not racist in ourselves, but trying to be anti-racist within our society. Mm. Wow, that's awesome. Bennett, I mean, you, I, I honestly, I, I wanted to record another episode with you just because like just listening to this podcast with you you've been i don't know it's just been like really rich yeah i don't know how to describe it's very thoughtful i mean i don't really have anything to add to that i mean i just kind of taking that in i think that's that's a really incredible point um yeah pretty self-serving i mean i asked you guys to to start a podcast principally so that i could appear on it and (laughs) podcast my ideas to the world all right guys so i'm gonna take over from here (laughs) this podcast now is the boy who cooks (laughs) <laughs> sorry and you actually cook so <laughs> it's like 15 minutes of cooking 15 minutes of like you know medicine or other things you know yeah <laughs> we luke and i have been kicked off so um um so i but- have a question for you guys if that's oh, okay yeah. yeah um what were you really surprised by in any of your medical training you know going back to like high school you know when we started learning about biology what like threw you off and changed the way you thought about what medicine was so I'm going to keep going back to this well that I keep drawing out of. So, and it's something we've been talking about on uh, quite a few of our episodes now is that uh, when I became a new third year, I started out in medicine. I actually started out on cardiac ICU and I, you know, kind of talking about your point earlier about finding some of your identity in medicine. I think I leaned a lot into that. And I really wanted medicine to be this thing that made me feel good when I say that I had formed relationships with patients and that I'd helped people. And I wasn't just at an office job, you know, kind of grinding my soul away. But those first couple of weeks on medicine on cardiac ICU really was bad for me because I felt helpless. I felt like the stuff that was causing these patients to be sick was so far out of my control and so far out of what you traditionally think medicine is. It wasn't just that these patients had an illness and they needed help. These patients were homeless or they didn't have the education level to understand why they needed to take these medications or, you know, the ability to change certain things in their lives that are making them ill. And I realized that medicine wasn't going to be this feel good thing that I came over the end of every day feeling like, Oh, wow, I really made a difference. It, it was more going to be draining and kind of depressing and was going to make me reevaluate really what I thought medicine was going to be like. 
And I think that was a massive culture shock for me. And it made me hate third year at first mm-hmm. uh, because I think the, my, this pedestal I put medicine on kind of came crashing down on my head. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's kind of my answer to that. I, that might've been a little bit. You Do know, you mind me interjecting and, and asking how did you recover from that or what has changed since? So, you know, what has changed since is that I think I've kind of accepted that, that, medicine isn't going to be easy and that you know while i was on medicine i had the opportunity to work in the private clinic at at uh at you know our like attending physicians like own kind of clinic that they run and that was so much better because the patients were higher socioeconomic status and they knew what medications they should be taking and they would do whatever they need to get better and i realized that i had two options you know i could take like an easier way out and I could not, you know, um, work at at an academic center or I could not work in a more, uh, poor community and I could go work at a well-to-do community and feel more like I was making an impact. Um, or I could stay at say an academic center and kind of fight that, you know, good fight that made me feel like I wasn't going anywhere. But I realized that I realized that what I, the, what I thought was kind of naive. And I think I've kind of accepted that it's going to be what it's described as. It's going to kind of be a little bit of a, of a battle to kind of advocate for these patients and to try to um, help these patients in any way. It's not going to be some easy sort of savior kind of type of job where you just walk in and you just fix their problem. They love you patients may not like you, they, 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 you may not be able to help them, but that's something you have to kind of be okay with. And I kind of had to just wrestle with that mentally. Mm-hmm. And I had to make a decision not to let that scare me off for what I want to do, because I want to do academics and I want to do a lot of community service and advocate for poor communities. Um, and I can't let that daunting task just scare me away from trying. And that's kind of what I had to wrestle with kind of mentally. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And then for, for myself, I would say kind of similar to Dane, I coming into third year, it, it was really that third year transition. I just kind of thought I'm going to walk in here and doctors are just going to be like superstars. Like they're going to come up with a perfect plan. That's not just going to like uh, make the patient well today, but it's going to make them well years from now. They're never going to have to come back. And I know that sounds so crazy because we know that's not the case, but I really had this idea of like, I am going to help make these people's lives better. And, you know, to be honest with you, my very first patient, uh, was in the hospital beyond my service. Like, so I was with him for four weeks and then he was still in the hospital and he was just really sick. And, you know, at first I just felt like I wasn't doing any good when I went and talked with him every day Um, because, you know, I felt like I wasn't necessarily always bringing him good news because he had an infection that just wouldn't go away. And so it was like, sorry, you had an infection. Oh, last night you had a fever. Oh, you threw up today. Like, well, those aren't good signs. Like, I just felt like I wasn't bringing any joy to this guy. and, And that was really debilitating for me. But, you know, what I learned from that experience. And I think what I learned throughout third year is that, yes, there are patients that I'm not going to be able to help make well, um, because maybe there's social factors going on, or maybe they're going to be really sick and they're going to come to the hospital and die. And that's going to happen. 
um, or, or, you know, they're going to have a lifelong battle with whatever it is that we tried to help them out with. And that's not going to be any easier for them. Um, but my role in that is to, like you said, don't bring in my own agenda, but actually to meet patients where they're at and like, what are their goals? What do they want out of their you know, care and looking into the future? What, what kinds of goals do they have once they get out of the hospital? So I think that was really eye-opening. I, I don't know if you've listened to our first episode, but I, I remember saying like, I thought I was going to be like, Tom Cruise walked into the hospital, like explosions going on in the background. And I'm just like the <laughs> coolest guy ever. And, you know, it was very humbling to realize like, no, like some people are going to come to the hospital. We're going to fix them the best that we can. We're going to send them, you know, away and they're going to come back because they, they don't have the means to keep themselves from being sick or they're going to do something that is going to make. Um, and, 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 you know, as hard as that was at first to accept that, you know, once I've accepted that now, it's like, well, how can I still meet people where they're at? Like, I still think I can do good and, and, and walk with people in their illnesses. You know, I think something you can find yourself on the, on the other side of that is to become really jaded and to be like, well, it doesn't matter. Yeah. They're going to be sick. Of course they're sick. Of course this patient's back. Of course, you know, of course this is happening. Well, you know, that's, I don't think that's a great view because sure there are patients that bounce back all the time, but you know, the important thing is to recognize that like you and that person do not share the same life experiences at all. And so the way that they were raised, the way that they view the world is going to be so different than what you are. And like, we can't bring our own agenda into that. We have to just meet people where they're at. And I think that's really what helped me get over that the most is just saying like, my role is not to fix everything. My role is to be here and to walk with this person in this thing. Um, well, Luke, I really identify with that so much. And it, I feel like it ties a little bit into what I said very early on uh, introducing myself is that like, we're in this field to see people. Doctors don't heal people. We don't fix people up, like in certain limited ways, maybe. But what we principally do is like, we see people, we seek to understand them. And I think in so, so many cases, we're not gonna be able to just wave a magic wand and make their problem go away. But exactly. what we can do is, bear witness is use our limited set of tools to try and understand and try and convey that understanding to the person themselves. And it's so much more rewarding. I feel like to just, you know, slap on a bandaid or rip out a gallbladder and send them home and great check. But there's a different kind of reward in that longer work of yes. understanding and of imparting a patient with the sensation that they're heard. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, Bennett. I don't have any more questions. Do you have any other questions or comments? Uh, I would just like to put a couple take-home points out there. Sure. Um, we always need to be mindful of where our patients are coming from. That stands for their level of education or their race, but it also stands for where were they 20 minutes ago? What was their drive here like? Um, What's their headspace? What's their home life? Uh, we need to be mindful about what goes on beyond our little clinic walls. And that matters so much more to our patient's health than what we do with them in the hospital or in the clinic. Um, and so just think about your, your patients as whole people that have whole lives. You know, they're not your elementary school teachers that only exist within the walls of the school, but they're, you know, 3D people that we need to think about everything that they do in order to be effective in our, our role as caregivers. Awesome. Yeah. 
Thank you guys so much for having me on. I really, really appreciate the opportunity. Oh yeah, yeah we, no. we loved having you on. And I mean, you know, it's, it's, you know, having students like you on that really make our podcast. I mean, we're having a blast talking to everybody and, and yeah. getting everyone's perspective. And, and, you know, I think you gave us some really great things to think about. Like, you know, that's one thing I really love about having conversations with you is I always walk away and I, I have to like contemplate like some of the things we talked about, which is really, I think a, a sign of a really good conversation. So, yeah. Well, thanks. Likewise. I'm really flattered. I, I've enjoyed talking to you guys. Yeah, no, for sure. Bennett. All right. Well, this is Dane. This is Luke. This is Bennett. And this is the Boys Who Cook podcast signing off. Thanks, guys. New content for the Boys Who Cook podcast drops every Monday and Friday. So be sure to check that out. Give us a follow on Spotify or whatever app you use to listen. Thanks so much for listening. We, we really do appreciate it.